Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Each of the hymns we've sung, familiar carols, don't know that we've sung the last one yet this year. I was about to say the children have missed that one, but then I guess I can include myself in the category. But um, you may think that I'm turning to Luke 2 and visiting the passage with the group of angels, the multitude that visited the shepherds, but that's not the case. I want for us in Luke to begin reading from verse 5 in chapter 1. We're going to read the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. We'll skip a portion and come to the point where Zacharias re-enters the narrative. But I want to read from verse 5 in Luke 1. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren. And they were both now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went in unto the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of the incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall, bring, she shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. <clears throat> and behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. If you could skip down now with me to verse 57. Verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son, 
And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table. And he wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid, up, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. We'll end our reading there. And trust again the Lord to add his blessing to the public reading of his word. Lest you are disappointed, I hope, I purpose at least in the message to read the remainder of this chapter, Zechariah's tremendous song of praise. But let's bow our heads together now, ask the Lord's help in considering His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come with joyful hearts to sing today of a Savior who has already come of a Savior who is coming again. And we pray that you might grant us grace as we pause and again visit a portion of your inspired word that you've preserved for us, just as it was said of the Old Testament in the days of the writing of the New Testament. These things are written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope in the example of those that have gone before. And so take up, Lord, what you've preserved for us. Grant us grace in considering it together. And we pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I'm tempted today to review the story of my first Christmas sermon. Some of you will remember it or will have heard the story more than once. But suffice it to say, it was on the angels that visited the shepherds. And yet in pulling from that, I thought, well, let's enlarge it and do a study of angels throughout Scripture. Young preachers are always ready to tackle the most difficult topics. You kind of back off as you realize what you don't know. But the long and short of it was my double alliterated outline. Well, let's just say it started with their high order. And it went from there. And at the lunch table, my father asked me, Reggie, how much time did you spend on your outline? Well... You know, preachers are proud of their double alliteration. I said, well, I worked on it a little while. He said, I was just curious, being your Christmas message and your outline was ho, ho, ho. Um, And I told him, if I had thought of that in the pulpit, I would have just had to quit because I would have laughed. I laughed for two hours that afternoon. It was pitiful. Well, we're visiting angels, at least this morning, but not the angels that came and sang to the shepherds. But the first of the several angelic messengers that were sent to these people, these key figures, if you will, in this point of our Lord's first advent, Gabriel sent to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. Gabriel sent again, in short order, we might say, to Mary to inform her 
of her role. What a remarkable, unexpected, supernatural role in the coming of that promised Messiah. But as we come and consider this story of Zacharias, it is a remarkable story indeed. Many things I trust, as you'll see, we would pull from his experience and apply to our own. But I've been thoughtful in this Christmas season myself of these individuals that I say figure so prominently in the story of the first advent. They, as we suggest often, were normal people. They were fallen sinners, just as we are. They were, in this case, those who had heard the message of the Messiah. They were believers, as we see in the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth, to be sure. But what was true of them? What were their experiences? What were their thoughts? What was their spiritual state when they came to be informed and then to be so central to these events in the history of redemption? And so as we come to consider Zacharias today as the angel is sent with this message to him in preparation for this child that would come so unexpectedly, not quite so unexpectedly and quite so miraculously as the virgin birth of Messiah, but yet a remarkable providence and perhaps supernatural intervention in the birth of John the Baptist himself. But in this event and what we see predicted and actually occurring in what we've read today, We have heaven-breaking silence after a period of some 400 years. The prophetic order had ceased. There had been a silence through the years of the captivity and following. Well, in the captivity, Daniel and Ezekiel and post-exilic prophets came. But shortly after the captivity ended, the heavens, I say, fell silent. You think of what had transpired in Israel, the trickle of a remnant that came back through Ezra and Nehemiah. Many more left in the captivity. A thriving Jewish population outside of Babylon. Lots of conjecture with regard to just where the wise men had heard and had some expectation with regard to a coming king of the Jews. Well, Jews right in their neighborhood, as it were, are still expecting But here we have the Lord breaking that silence. John the Baptist, as we think of, the forerunner of Jesus, he's in the opening pages of the New Testament Scriptures, but John really, if we get technical and we talk to our seminary students about such things, is is kind of the last in the succession of the Old Testament prophets. But he, as our Lord said, was greater than all that had gone before in the kingdom Because John the Baptist didn't merely have the privilege of saying the Messiah is coming. John the Baptist was the one given the precious task of saying, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. It is to the father of this last prophet, if you will, that the angel appears. Zacharias is doing his course. We read here of his course in the temple. He was of a season or a household, the course of Abiah, we see there in verse 5. 
There were 24 courses in the alternating service of the Jews, of the priests of that time. They didn't have all 24. They had to take, I think it was four or six courses that remained and were counted after the captivity, but they subdivided them and filled in the spots again. But even among these, the so many priests, it would be by lot, it would have been a special privilege that not all would have in the course of their lifetime to be one in the temple this month, two months of the year, that his course would be there, but for him himself to be the one going into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but in the holy place, this would have been a once in a lifetime event, certainly the highlight of Zachariah's ministry. But he went in and, well, as we read the story, something quite unexpected occurs. He's visited by the angel Gabriel. He's given record that his wife will bear a son. Not the Messiah. The Messiah's forerunner. The one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. One given, as we'll see, a remarkable ministry to fulfill. And Zacharias obviously is overwhelmed. He's at first fearful. Finally recognizes his privilege. But yet for the better part of a year, he perhaps remained for that month in Jerusalem as his family would have returned. We read there that he departed ultimately, verse 23, to his own house. And somewhat after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceives. So for 10 months, per se, perhaps more, he hasn't spoken a word. There's a chastening that he's enduring but we have to wonder, perhaps an additional part of the chastening was the joy that accompanied him during those months and he couldn't express himself at all with regard to that joy and expectation. So I want to look this morning at Zacharias. This first one to receive the angelic messengers, if you will, of Christmas. And yet from him seek to draw help, encouragements, for ourselves. Each year I'm more and more impressed that some of the circumstances that befell the Lord's people waiting for the first advent are going to befall us in many ways as we await the second advent. Expectation, faith, yet struggles, unbelief, confusion perhaps. Well, may God give us grace as He gave grace to Zacharias. Just think with me about some very simple thoughts with regard to this man. And the first thought is this. He was a spiritual man in a day of apostasy. He was a spiritual man in a day of apostasy. He and his family were believing in days in which unbelief prevailed. Luke, the historian, marks out the beginning of his story with the phrase there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. The table is set, as it were, for us to look at least a little into the window of Zacharias' own times and seasons. The Herod that is mentioned here, there's more than one in the New Testament Scriptures. This is Herod that is called the Great he is not called Herod the Great because of his character, 
see in a moment there were huge flaws with regard to his character. He was called Herod the Great because of his accomplishments. He did do great things. But it was a season, I say, of apostasy. Zacharias and his family are believers. Spiritual people in such days. I always think of Israel's history with regard to the captivity. In the days before the Babylonian captivity, Israel was characterized, we might say, by worldliness, certainly by apostasy, and a chief characteristic of that, one of those antagonistic perspectives or deviations from the gospel, a spirit of antinomianism. They're worldly. Their lives are following the ungodly. We see in the history of the kings that there were things they brought into the temple that they saw in the pagan temples. Oh, let's do this. Let's learn from these people that are blind and dead in trespasses and sins. After the Babylonian captivity, the Jews were mindful of their sins. Mindful of what had led them to experience the Lord's promised chastening. They come back, we see a breath of revival. I love the little phrase in Ezra. In part of the prayer, thou hast given us a little reviving in our bondage. We read this story of Nehemiah, a remarkable man, secular worker and ruler among the people, but yet godly, prayerful. The remnant that came there, they were jealous for purity, jealous not to fall into the error of the fathers that had led to the captivity. But that zeal for purity morphed, as we know, in the years intervening. And those four centuries of silence with regard to prophetic office, those four centuries saw the evolution of factions among the people. The Pharisees, the most careful among them. And it's almost as it were in avoiding the antinomianism that preceded the captivity they walked headfirst into legalism that followed the captivity. And it was such that when the Messiah came, in large measure, those to whom he came didn't know him. For as John phrases it, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. I was reading several that commented with regard to the wise men that it's interesting and kind of a harbinger of the New Testament. A little bit of what we've been studying in Romans 9 to 11 recently that the wise men, Gentiles from the East, are among the first that come to worship the child Jesus. It's in this time, I say, that Zechariah is living. And if you think a little bit more about the season in Herod that Luke, the historian, mentions, this Herod the Great reigned in Judea from 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C. Commentators are wrestling still over that 4 B.C. date. Some in recent years have suggested maybe 2 B.C. is closer. They're struggling with some eclipses that occurred and the precise death of this Herod. Well, I don't know how much precision we need in those particulars. But for almost 40 years, for a generation, this Herod, 
came to be known as the Great reigned. He was not a Jew himself. He was an Edomian with an Arab mother. Edomia, kingdom south of Judea and the makeup of things after the succession of Gentile empires had begun. But he was skilled as a politician, as a soldier. He endeared himself to subsequent Roman emperors. He had to navigate carefully the rivalry between Octavian and Anthony. Cleopatra figures a little bit in his history. That's something of the time period he is found within. He was given an army of the Romans to subdue Palestine, Judea, to himself, which he did. He was, as we said, a successful builder. You think of this, a captive people waiting for their Messiah, eager to see these successive Gentile empires that God has promised and predicted and placed over them to finally be overthrown and come to an end. The chief priests would desire that little temple of Nehemiah's day to be enlarged. Herod was one that took up the task. I remember the echo of one of my professor's voice in undergrad days. This professor had been to the Holy Land several times, taken one or two snapshots along the way. We weren't uh, strangers to slides in New Testament classes at times. If you need a translation of last word slides, young people just see me afterward. I'll explain uh, some of the paraphernalia that was involved. But he showed several slides, various places, but one, of course, in particular that is well visible today, the Wailing Wall and the Herodian stones, massive stones, part of Herod's rebuilding of the temple, beautifications of the temple still there today. Doubtless, there were mixed feelings among the religious leaders about this man. Well, he's, he's building our temple. He's doing some stuff we like. There's other things. Well, the fact that he murdered one of his wives and two of his sons just out of some fear of losing power. These are not insignificant events either. And of course, we know subsequent to our reading, he cared nothing for the children of a whole village in his reign. If there's some thought that one of those children... You think of how old he was near the end of his life. And he still would snuff out the lives of those two and under in Bethlehem. Times then were bad too. There are a lot of questions about what's going on. Lord, what are you doing? These Roman emperors and they're fighting one another, vying for power. I don't know if it's being a believer, if it's my personality type. I marvel at the lust for power and what it will lead men to do. You think of the wealth that many possess. I've heard it said, I think I maybe understand this a little. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you've got everything money can buy, an abundance of money in reserves and there's nothing else really to buy, why do you need more? 
And of course, the reply is, it isn't about money. You don't get it. It's about power. Well, okay, why do do you need, why do you want power? You want to have control? What are you thinking somehow you're going to have control instead of God? And yet, what is the history of this world? Herod snuffing out enemies. I almost hesitate to introduce it. It's, it's a piece of humor per se, but I remember riding in my grandfather's pickup truck one time. Something on the radio. It's a country song. And it had the phrase in there, you better do unto others before them others do it unto you. Well, that's an interesting take on the golden rule. Uh, a take that could only be uh, perceived in a fallen world. And, well, perhaps it is thinking like that that comes into the mind of a Herod. You better do it unto others before they do it unto you. If you think of what's going on in your heart is going on in theirs. The evil desires and pursuits that you're entertaining, they're entertaining too. Well, perhaps that leads us a little toward understanding something of life in a fallen, sin-cursed world. But you think of the expectation that is coming to Israel. Some suggest, and this is conjecture to be sure, but the interest of the wise men was because of their familiarity with Daniel and his prophecy of the weeks, 77s. Israel itself, messianic fervor is there. We see it doesn't take much to fan it to flames in Jesus' earthly ministry. They come at one point and would by force take him and make him king. There were expectations. But yet there was little gospel understanding. The Lord had to say often to his own fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We'll see in Zacharias' song, the closing of the chapter, there was gospel understanding in him. I say he was a spiritual man in days of apostasy. We, believers in our own times, are a spiritual people in days of apostasy. There are lies, there are political ambitions, there is vying for power among earthly rulers and empires. There are expectations among religious people of all religions and there are expectations of Christians and all the varied pieces, if you will, of a Christian world. Some of those are good. Some of them are inaccurate and fleshly. And so we need wisdom. We need help to navigate such seasons and be spiritual people and yet gospel 
focused people in our similar days. So he was a spiritual man in days of apostasy. But secondly, he struggled with unbelief. He struggled with unbelief. In an interesting sermon contrasting Zacharias' words, Wherefore shall I know? He said to the angel. And Mary's similar words, How shall this be? Charles Spurgeon points out that one of these exclamations shows great faith. Another one shows seeds of unbelief. Sadly, it was Zacharias the hero of our story that, I say, struggled with unbelief. He should have been quite eager and ready to hear with expectation and with full belief the words of the angel. I mean, he had been praying. There's actually some discussion among commentators what his prayer was that Gabriel said, your prayer is heard. It seems clear enough because Gabriel immediately continues and said, your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and it's at that point that his struggle with unbelief comes to the surface. I say many suggest that it is the prayer for a son that is heard and answered, but others suggest, and one of my favorites uh, as far as recent New Testament commentators go, Leon Morris, he says, well, it's possible, but it's somewhat difficult. Number one, it's the heir's tense. It seems that it's the prayer he's praying in the temple itself at this point of service that is referenced. He said it would be hard to think of Zacharias, a priest, a godly man, bringing just a selfish prayer with him into that highlight of his ministry. He is of the impression that it was a prayer similar to Simeon's expectation. Consolation of Israel for which he prayed. Whatever it is, we do not know, but... His prayer was heard. There we have another little window of what this man was like in his days of expectation. He was prayerful. But if we think of his unbelief, and the angel names it, it's the reason for his chastening with being made dumb for that season. I mean, consider the fact that he's a priest. He has greater acquaintance with the things of God, greater acquaintance, greater access to the Scriptures than the rank and file of the people. So he has a position of some advantage. We read also and see that he's advanced in years. This is one of the few parts of being advanced in years that we can focus on as a good thing. I almost pause in the reading twice with our authorized version that phrase, stricken with years, that kind of hits hard. Uh, no pun intended there, but the years start to strike along the way. But being advanced in years, his experience, his wrestling with his own flesh, his wrestling with the world, the flesh, and the devil, still a godly believing man in such a season, his maturity, not only in earthly years, but in the things of God, should have been an aid to him at this point. And as we've said already and noted, he was a man of prayer. And so 
He's doing all the right stuff. He's faithful during these years where that's a rare thing. And yet he's still struggling. At this point that is going to be the, can we say, overriding purpose of his time here in this earth. To be the father of the forerunner of the Messiah. It's not an unbelief where it's too good to be true. It's a, this can't happen. Do we come to a point where our faith is so weak that we don't expect anything, much less such a great thing? It's one of the encouragements in our recent viewing of the series on revival from Reformation Heritage. How often those windows of remarkable blessing, sometimes remarkably short-lived, but real, how often they came in very dark seasons. Well, in secular history, there's a season of history called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Rome, the fourth of the empires of Daniel's prophecy, is at the coming to the zenith of its power. It was cruel in many ways. It was efficient in every way. And in the providence of God, the Greek language and the Roman roads made it possible for missionaries to spread the good news with remarkable speed and ease. But I say in that season, all this other stuff that God would overrule all this other stuff going on, Zacharias wrestles with unbelief. We only know by experience what we've seen. So with that in ministry all the time, seen this, seen that, haven't ever seen that. And Zacharias, I mean, you think even of the supernatural nature of what he's experiencing in conversation with an angel. I mean, that would increase faith, we would think. But he's struggling. And so the angel pronounces this chastening upon him. Zacharias, you don't believe it? Well, I'm going to give you a sign. You're not going to be able to speak until everything I've just told you is going to happen is fulfilled. And of course, Zechariah leaves. He is unable to speak. Think of some of those miracles. We read and see various miracles in Scripture, those seasons of the intervention of the supernatural. Some of them, I mean, the resurrection of Lazarus, Christ's own resurrection. These are great. These are amazing. But I think sometimes of the lesser miracles, the Tower of Babel, all these people can understand each other. And now I can only understand these people, and then these people can't understand me anymore. I mean, just languages, poof. 
Greek students work a long time to get a little partial ability to use a language. And I don't know how many Greek students prayed for the Lord to do that kind of miracle again before the final, but I digress. But here's a man who now cannot speak. He can't communicate what doubtless he would love to communicate. Spurgeon had an interesting thought. He said sometimes we, how did he phrase it? We, we gather the sticks that the Lord uses to chasten us. Here's Zacharias in his unbelief as one that should be a proclaimer of truth. The particular character of his chastening is that he, he wouldn't be able to speak for a long season. But of course the story doesn't end with Zechariah's struggles with unbelief and his chastening. It ends with what we suggest is our third part and final thought in the life in this piece of Zechariah's life. That faith and joy, both of those, faith and joy overcome unbelief. Read with me if you would now from where we ceased our reading earlier. Let's start from verse 65 of Luke 1 again. Well, no, let's back up and start with verse 63. We read these, but let's read them again. And he, that is Zechariah, asked for a writing table. And he wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed. And he spake and praised God. And fear came all that dwelt round about them. And all those sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David." as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware unto our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. You might here think that Zechariah shared I would say amen, those millennial hopes. But he doesn't have a clouded view of the Messiah with no understanding of gospel. Because we read continuing on, verse 76. Thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. Thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto His people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the opened mouth and heart of Zacharias. I say faith 
and joy overcome unbelief. For his son to be the forerunner of Messiah. What a remarkable privilege. What a remarkable revelation. There are certainly, we know with hindsight, many pieces of that life that could bring disappointment and sorrow. John the Baptist had an abnormal ministry. He wasn't a celebrated speaker at the temple. He went forth in the wilderness. He had people gathering to him outside of the normal places of worship. Kind of sounds like a Puritan preacher. He was misunderstood. Jealousy against him by the chief priests. They have to send, you know, uh, overseeing committees to go listen and figure out what's going on. Too many people are paying attention. We got to know what's happening. He was ultimately killed by the son of this wicked Herod that had ruled in the days of his father. But he would point men to Christ. He would be the one to say, Behold the Lamb of God. Here is the promise of the ages fulfilled. Here is the one that grants repentance and remission of sins. Here's the one that would say, He must increase, but I must decrease. Zacharias and Elizabeth. And of course we know we've part of the story we skipped. Elizabeth is visited by Mary when Mary learns from this angel of her part as the mother of Christ. These people have a front row seat to the first advent. These people are those through whom God fulfilled the promise that we remember and celebrate at Christmas. But they were flesh and blood like we are. They had struggles alongside their blessings like we do. But by the grace of God, they were visited with renewed faith. Their minds and hearts were brought back to that consolation of Israel. Not getting rid of the Romans. That will be in the second advent, can we say, incidental. Coming the second time without sin into salvation. Coming again to breathe life into the dead bodies of the saints that have gone before. To glorify and translate those that are alive and remain. These are very real events that we expect in our days of uncertainty. We need, as Zacharias, the struggles, with doubts, fears, to be brought back constantly to that gospel focus. That we might be able to sing a song like Zacharias sang. Herods are still on the thrones. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are still in unbelief. This son that you've waited for, this miraculous birth, this overwhelming joy is going to be accompanied by sorrow. And yet isn't that what Simeon would tell Mary in just a few months? But yet the end of the story 
is not sorrow. The end of the story is that this Jesus, this one whom John would proclaim as a forerunner, this Jesus in his first advent will pay the penalty and merit the reward of that broken covenant in the first Adam. And as he comes again, to be admired. I love that phrase. To be admired among all them that believe. What a day as we sing of rejoicing that will be. Zacharias and Elizabeth, many others in this, these narratives surrounding the, the nativity were real people in real circumstances with real problems and yet a real God a real Bible, and a real gospel. They navigated trouble, unbelief, and were victorious. May God give us grace to be gospel-focused like they were, to navigate our troubles, to navigate our unbelief, and to come as Zacharias did, to have faith and joy overcome all. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we today read a history. There aren't questions and mysteries about Jesus of Nazareth, who He was and what His life was and his death and His resurrection. They're already fulfilled. And we rest our eternity on the success of what Jesus did in His first advent. But Lord, we live waiting, waiting another day. And we pray that You would give us something of the same grace you gave to trembling Zacharias, who are not supernatural angelic messengers, nor do you even warn us about such things, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received. <laughs> Let him be accursed. Lord, we have the gospel. Let that be our anchor. Let that bear hope in our own days of waiting and expectation. Root us in the truth, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.